Well, good morning, church. So we get into the Word this morning. I know that some of you uh, with more sick and twisted minds really wanted to hear Andy read verses 3 through 63 this morning. If you've looked at our text, that would have been fun, but uh, I decided to have a little mercy on our brother today and on us as well uh, for the sake of time not to read all of those, those names. Uh, we come to Ezra chapter 2. And uh, I love what Derek Kidner said about this chapter. It's, it's a, like so many chapters that we find in the Bible that we wonder, okay, why did God include that? Derek Kidner said, this chapter, however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care and to Israel's vitality. And so while this may not be the most exciting of chapters in the scriptures, and this is one of those that when we're doing our read through the Bible in a year kind of thing, we get to this chapter and we just kind of go, okay, fast forward, check that box off and move on, list of names that I don't know, that I don't know how to pronounce or what to do with, and all these guys are dead, so they're not going to care. So we just kind of fast forward through, and yet I want us to see this morning God included Ezra chapter 2 According to his purpose for our instruction, we, we believe, as the Bible teaches, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped. And so there's something here in Ezra chapter 2 that we need. We may not exceptionally like it or be excited by it, but we need it because God has put it here for our instruction. And so... As we talked about last week, if you are here with us, Ezra is the story of how God reclaimed his people known as the Israelites. He brought them back from uh, 70 years of captivity in the nation of Babylon. They had had a long track record of disobedience to God, and God had been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to, to warn them of the coming judgment. And then finally, God sends the prophet Jeremiah to say, God's days of mercy are over. God's grace is about to run out and, and Babylon is coming for you. And you're going to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But then God also gave Jeremiah the word, but then God's going to bring you back. He's going to lead you back to this land and going to restore the rightful worship of the one true and living God in the midst of his people because God's people had been engaging in all kinds of idolatry and worshiping all kinds of false gods. So we've talked about many times we are not immune to idolatry and the worship of false things in our day. In fact, even that song that Grant's been leading us in reminds us of some of those false gods that we worship. But Ezra is the story of how after the Babylonian captivity, God leads his people, or at least a remnant of his people, 50,000 strong, into this place known as the Promised Land. He leads them back. And as we look at it this morning, I've entitled today's message, The Remnant returns because we saw in chapter one how God was setting the stage for the rest of this book. He was fulfilling his promises that he had made. He was restoring his people according to his plan and promise. And as we see this morning in chapter two, this is a monument. This is something that God has erected in front of us to say, look, I am faithful to my word. 
And church, we need to hear that again and again and again. Our God is faithful to his word. There is not one promise that he has made that will come up short. There is not one thing that he has given us in his word that will not be fulfilled. In fact, all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see laid out here in Ezra 2. And you may say, well, I don't see Jesus in Ezra 2. I hope by the end of the sermon today, you will see, Ezra in, you will see Jesus in Ezra chapter 2. So here's the main theme for today that we're going to walk through bit by bit. It's this, that God's place is reclaimed by God's people who by God's provision return to God's rightful praise. I know that's a mouthful, but, but I want us to see that's what God is putting forward this morning and not just for the people of Ezra's day, but for people today. This is a picture of the way that God, the one true and living God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Ezra chapter 2 is a picture of the faithfulness of the same God that we are worshiping here this morning. And so let's walk our way through this theme in this chapter today. First of all, the first thing we want to see is that it's about God's place. It's about God's place. There in verse 1, as he's beginning to lay these things out, it says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylonia. But notice, they returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. This is the promised land. This is, uh, this is the promised land that God had promised all the way back to their forefather, Abraham. All, if you go all the way back to 2000 B.C., 1500 years prior to the days of Ezra, you find God rescuing out of paganism a man named Abraham. And he comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Abraham, I've got some amazing promises for you. And there was nothing about Abraham that made him worthy of those promises. The Bible simply says Abraham believed God, trusted in his promises, and God counted that toward him as righteousness. God considered him righteous and right with God because Abraham believed God. Faith has always been the way in which God does what he does among his people. Let's look at some of the promises that are... These promises made to Abraham are, are whispered about, even shouted about in Ezra chapter 2. So first of all, God promised to show Abraham, their forefather, a land. God promised to show Abraham a land. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to this one whose name would become Abraham, it was, he was called Abram first, but he said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to notice how God is directing every bit of this, not just in Genesis 12, but in Ezra 2. And as we're going to see throughout scripture, God is directing all of these things according to his divine and perfect purposes. 
So God says, first of all, I want to show you, Abraham, a land. That's the promise. And yet, as we know, by the time Abraham dies, he only has one small field in that promised land in which he is able to bury his wife, Sarah. He has not taken possession of the land that God promised. He has not become the owner of all of that property. He has only one small parcel of that land, a foretaste of the glory that God was going to bring about in later days. And then as we watch what happens with the Israelites over the next 500 years, they end up going to captivity in a place called Egypt. Fleeing a famine, they seek refuge in Egypt, and they end up becoming slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And it seemed as though God's promise had fled away. And yet God is faithful to His Word And so God was going to fulfill his promise related to this land, which he does in the days of Moses and the days of Joshua, which I wish we had time to talk about those days this morning. But the one thing I want you to see is God was running headlong toward the fulfillment of that promise of the land in a particular structure that he was going to bring about in the days of the kings. Around 1000 B.C., we see God keeping his promise through the building of, of the temple. As we said many times, the temple in Jerusalem represented the presence of God among his people. That's why in those days of Jeremiah in 586 BC, when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the people were so distraught because that place which represented the presence of God among his people and the promises of God to his people was now laying in ruins, not one brick stacked on another any longer and the timbers burned into ash. And the people saw in that Perhaps our God has now finally abandoned us. Perhaps we have now gone too far that his promises can no longer reach us. And so by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and they wept as they remembered the glory of their homeland. And for 70 years, they remained in that captivity until, as we see here in Ezra, God renewed his relationship with his bride, with his chosen people, and brought them back to himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, speaking of Solomon, God said, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's father David so desperately wanted to build the house of the Lord, wanted to build that temple there in Jerusalem, but God said, no, that will be for your son to do, and I'm going to do something even greater than what Solomon's going to do. Solomon's going to build me a house, but I'm going to build a kingdom out of him. I'm going to build an everlasting kingdom out of Solomon that will never pass away. And so as we see this morning, these promises being fulfilled, these promises that are, that are being laid out even here in Ezra chapter 2. And so as we look at this again this morning, as we look back to the promises of Abraham, them being fulfilled in the, in the temple, we need to remind ourselves, this is the same God that we're worshiping this morning. And we no longer look to a temple in the center of the city of Jerusalem. That temple isn't there anymore by the way. Even the one that was rebuilt in Ezra's day was, restored, was destroyed by the Romans in 70, BC, or 70 AD. But we find that we are looking to a different kind 
of temple this morning. First Peter chapter 2 and Ezra chapter 2 have so many similarities. I want to show you some of them this morning. But one thought is this, that the Old Testament temple has now been replaced with the New Testament church. We no longer need to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem as the Muslims might do, or even some Jews might do even to this day. We recognize that the temple was really just a foreshadowing of a greater glory. All that the people came to see there in Jerusalem with that gleaming structure that was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, that was just a glimmer of the greater glory that God was going to reveal through His church. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, To the church, you yourselves, church, you're like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the same language that God said of Solomon in building the temple. You're going to be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what was once a concrete physical reality, a building in the center of Jerusalem has been replaced with something far greater. Church, do we realize that that which is spiritual is far greater than that which is physical? I am not trying in any way to diminish the physical nature with which God created us and this world in, in which we live. We need to be reminded that there is a greater reality because God does not dwell in a physical confinement. God is spirit, and we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so that which was once physical, that temple in Jerusalem that represented the presence of God among His people has now been replaced with a greater and better temple that is the people of God. He dwells in us now. He dwells in the very midst of his people as he always designed. He tabernacles among us now. And we have much to rejoice in in that regard. So we see this word about God's place. And even as you get into verses 21 through 33 of our present text, you notice God's people being related to the places from which they came. It's just another reminder. It's just another reminder of what God was doing in fulfilling the promises about the land. Second, this morning we see a word about God's people. God's people. Again, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 12, and then we'll make our way into the days of the Exodus from Egypt, and then we'll make our way back to Ezra, and then we'll make our way to this present day. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning four different times. And so the second thing we see here is God's people, and we remind ourselves in Genesis chapter 12 that God made a second promise to Abraham related to a nation. Now, Abraham at this point is a man in his 80s who has no kids. So when God says, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, it's reasonable that Abraham's wife Sarah would laugh at that. How in the world are we going to become a great nation when we don't even have one kid to carry on our heritage? At this point, our servant Eliezer will be our heir our name will die with us. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. Genesis 12, 2, I will make of you a great nation, God said, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God promised to make of Abraham a people, and God kept that word through Israel. Through his chosen people Israel, God kept that word. And we see that the Old Testament, the chronicle of God's people Israel. And, and the Bible is so clear, is so clear about this reality that Israel was by no means a perfect people. They were a mess. I mean, they spent more years worshiping false gods than worshiping the true God. They spent many more years in disobedience to God than they did in obedience to God. Even when you get to the days of their kings, as I'm reading through in my Bible reading right now, through Kings and Chronicles, there's this constant statement about king after king after king that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's king after king, and there's a few along the way, a handful, that did what was right and good in the sight of the Lord. But the predominant theme was, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so you come all the way down to the days of Jeremiah, and finally God says, I've had enough. I've had enough. Exile is coming. Babylon is at your doorstep. But God had said to them in Exodus 3, as he's drawing them out of that land of Egypt, God said, come. He said this to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And did not God do that very thing? And he was faithful to his people all down through those years, even when they were unfaithful to him. And church, I would say to us, that's the very nature of our God Aren't we thankful that God's faithfulness to us is not dependent upon our faithfulness to Him? Now, that doesn't mean that we get some kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card where we can do whatever we want, however we want, with whomever we want. That's not the picture of Scripture. The, the faithfulness of God beckons us to obedience to His commands. Out of love for Him, seeing His faithfulness, we want to in turn be faithful, but we can only do that through the Holy Spirit, which is empowering us for those good works. But again, we see a replacement taking place in the New Testament days, where Old Testament Israel is replaced with the New Testament church. All the promises of God that were made to Israel will find their fulfillment in the New Testament church and the people of God. And there's so much debate over uh, God's continuing relationship with Israel and what he will do in the future regarding Israel. And I don't have time to get into all of that today. And there's so many different views of how that's all going to work out. But let me just say this. God is keeping his promises to Israel through the church through the redeemed people of God in this New Testament day, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9. Again, comparing Ezra 2 and 1 Peter 2 is, is so helpful for us. But you, church, you are a chosen race. Old Testament, who is that? That's Israel. They're the chosen race. But now he says, no, you, church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. The kingdom and the king and the priest have come together in these days in a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Again, in Old Testament, that's Israel, the holy nation, the set-apart people. You are a people for his own possession. Jews and Gentiles alike brought together in this beautiful mystery called the church. 
Why? What's the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's our mission, church. But before you can understand your mission, you've got to understand your identity. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you will never know what you are to do in Christ. And so Peter tells us, this is who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim His excellencies. Third, this morning we see a picture of God's provision. And again, this is one of the huge themes in the book of Ezra, this, this theme of provision. We saw it last week, and we're going to see it again today. And it'll continue throughout this book that God is providing everything that's necessary for the accomplishing of His purpose. And we'll talk more about the, that purpose in, in specifics in a moment. But again, God's provision. We go back to Abraham. We see the roots there in the days of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God promised to bless Abraham, but his greatest blessing was his presence. Church, let us never forget. Let us never forget that the greatest blessing that we enjoy as the people of God is the presence of God. Before we would seek something from his hand may we be those who would seek his face to know him and to be known by him and to make him known among the nations and so god says to abraham again genesis 12 abraham go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land notice that i will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who honors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the primary actor in the covenant. It's always been him. The covenant has never been primarily dependent upon us. Again, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for us. There is obedience required on our part. Abraham does have to get up out of the land of Ur and go to the land that God is going to show him. There is obedience required on our part. But God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our obedience. So God makes this promise to Abraham, and then God keeps this promise by plundering his enemies. That may seem, seem a strange shift, but we see it several times in the Old Testament days that God was continually plundering his enemies in order to provide with, for his people the wealth necessary to do the work he had given them to do. And so how were the people able to construct the tabernacle in the days of Moses? There were several million dollars worth of materials necessary to build a tabernacle, and they just came out of a place of slavery. How were they able to do the work of God in building the tabernacle where God could be rightfully worshipped? Exodus 12 gives us the answer. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And then the word says, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. That's a word of victory that, that they, it was like they had a military victory and yet they never raised a sword. 
God stirred the hearts of the Egyptians to give them gold and silver vessels and things that that were representative of wealth in those days. God did that work not so that they could be healthy, wealthy, and happy all their days. That's the false prosperity gospel that we're seeing preached all over our land today. That's not it. God gave them that wealth so that they could use that wealth in worship of Almighty God. By the way, church, that's the same reason why God has given us our wealth, whatever level you find yourself at. God has given you wealth for the purpose of worship and not self-worship, but worship of our sovereign God. So in those Old Testament days, we see several times, even here in Ezra 2, and we, we see this picture in, verse, in verses 67 through 70 of once again, God is giving them supplies to accomplish the mission. But while in the Old Testament, God showed his enemies no mercy, in these New Testament days, it is God who is showing his enemies new mercy. This is something to rejoice in, church. Because all of us, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, all of us were once enemies of Almighty God. All of us deserved only to be plundered by Him, to be stripped bare by Him, and left destitute by Him. But rather than treating us as our sins deserve, rather than treating us according to our rebellion against Him, God in His mercy did not do toward us what we deserved. And God in His grace went a step farther and gave us the glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.10, he says to us, Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Church, that's who we are. Once we were not a people, even in this room we come from so many diverse backgrounds. So many different statuses in society. So many different educational levels. So many different thoughts about the various issues of the day that would seek to divide us into camps. And yet, we recognize that we have something in Jesus Christ that unites us together as God's people. This is no longer an an issue of, of race and descendancy. This has now become an issue of being rescued by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we have in common. That's what makes us the people of God. And that's what brings us together under His provision to do this work. Now we have received His mercy. By the way, I would just say this to us. If this morning you would find yourself not yet one of the people of God, you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, you've not yet turned from your sin and and trusted in the Savior that God has sent for our redemption, let me help you to understand this morning the way that you become one of the sons and daughters of God is through God's mercy, it's not through your works. It's not through some kind of special prayer, some kind of special formula that you enact in your life. It's by the grace of God. God has given us what we don't deserve. And by the mercy of God, he has removed from us the punishment that we do deserve and placed it upon his son. 
By the way, lest we think these 50,000 who returned to Judah and Ezra's day were somehow worthy. They were people just like us. Sinners before God. But God made way for them to draw near to him. And they took him at his word. And this led rightfully at the end of this chapter to God's praise. This is where the book of Ezra is running again and again and again and again. And this is where we need to be running again and again and again and again. As we think about this day in which we're living, in which we've just, we're coming out of a season in which the church has been radically dismantled. You say, well, I don't really understand that. Well, let me show you one word here that, that helps us to understand what the church is. And it's right here in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. Notice what it says. And the whole assembly together was 42,360. The whole assembly together. That is an Old Testament picture of what's now a New Testament reality as we think about what is this thing called the church. If we're supposed to be the replacement for the temple and the, even the replacement for Israel, what is this thing called the church? And we want to we avoid two wrong extremes. We don't want to view the church just as a building that we go to. There is a church building, but the church is not a building that we go to. But we also sometimes fall into a, a, the opposite end of the spectrum where we begin to view the church just as a bunch of disconnected people who happen to worship Jesus. And so in that mentality, we can begin to look at this thing that's become called uh, online church and we can say, well, that works. If we're just a bunch of disconnected people that all just worship Jesus together, we can do that just as well online as we can in the church building. And yet I would say to us, based upon the authority of Scripture, that's a misunderstanding of what the church is. Because the church is the assembled people of God. And I don't think we can overemphasize that. And I know that we are continuing in a day where there are giant obstacles to our assembly together, but let us not settle for something less than God's best, which is our assembling together. There is something unique and special and God-honoring and God-empowered that happens when we come together in this place on Sunday morning. And it has nothing to do with this building. And it has nothing to do with anything special about us other than that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so when we come together, we become that temple. We become that place where God dwells. We become that place where He is rightfully worshipped. And there is something that takes place when God's people come together in a room like this that cannot take place virtually. That cannot take place online. And I've said from the very beginning of this pandemic, we need to view what we're doing through Facebook Live like a supplement, not a substitute. Here's what I mean by that. Every, every morning when I get up in the morning, I take a couple of, of vitamins, a couple of supplements that I take. You, know, you get to that age, and there are just certain things that don't work as well as they used to, and you start to take vitamins. And some of you, most of you in this room would probably uh, be in that same boat with me. 
And so I take vitamin C every day, and I take a, I take a multivitamin every day, and I, and I just feel better when I, when I take those. When I don't, I, I feel worse. And so I take those supplements. But what if I began to use those supplements as a substitute for my regular meals? Instead of eating my Frosted Flakes and strawberry yogurt for breakfast, as I do most days, I thought, eh, I'll just take these vitamins, that'll be good enough. Instead of going to Taco Bell and getting the $5 nacho box for lunch, as I do far too many days, maybe I wouldn't need the vitamins if I would quit going there. This is not confession time. But I just said, you know what, I had some vitamins this morning, I'm good. What if instead of coming home and, and cooking up some stir-fry on the, on the grill or whatever we're into that evening, I just said, you know what? I had those vitamins this morning. I think I'm good. What would happen over the course of time? Those vitamins are good for me, right? But they would be a part of me ending up in a place of death if I allow the supplement to become a substitute. Do you see it? And church, I believe that's what's happening in our day in so many places. And God has blessed us here at Corinth that we're seeing a little more than half of our folks returning to this church on a, on a regular basis now. But we still have many, and I want to encourage us to be active in reaching out to the many who have not yet returned to us. We sat down and walked through our membership role, and we recognize right now, in this very moment, there are a full third of our families that were with us in worship back in March that that have not yet returned. And that concerns me pastorally because it's living on vitamins. And we need to be concerned about that. Yes, we need to be concerned about COVID-19. But I've said from the very beginning of this pandemic, there is something worse than what COVID-19 can bring. There are dangers in our day, spiritually speaking. Ezra is all about not just the res restoration of a physical temple, as we'll see. It's about the restoration of spiritual worship. And I believe that's the same kind of day we're in now. It's not just about filling up the church building. But it's about coming back to the rightful worship of Almighty God, which takes place when we assemble together there is no replacement for that there is no substitute online can be a supplement it can never be a replacement and i say that that we would look to those who cannot yet rejoin us and we would go the extra mile to be reaching out to them, making the phone calls, sending the cards, encouraging them during this time but also recognizing there is no substitute for what takes place when we come together. That's by God's design. God promised through Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth. Genesis 12, God said, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was simply meant to be a conduit for God's blessing, not a container for God's blessing. 
He was simply meant to be a pipeway through which God was going to bless all the peoples of the earth and following after him. The same thing was true of Israel. They were meant to be a conduit of God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth, but they became a curse to all the peoples of the earth because of their disobedience to Almighty God. But God kept his promise anyway, and he kept it by sending the Savior. And again, we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We see promise after promise after promise that God has made and keeps making and continues to fulfill. Galatians chapter 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, when everything was in place, is the kind of the idea there, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And so He had to be, so He could do what He came to do, which was to redeem those who were under the law. That's us, folks. We were under the law of God, then Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just set free from the slavery to sin. Don't ever miss this. We were not just set free from the slavery to sin. We, were, we are now considered children of God through faith in Jesus. The same kind of faith that caused Abraham to be counted righteous before God resides in those who trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking forward to a Redeemer that was to come. We look back to his cross and his empty tomb and we give great praise to God. So how do we worship him? We'll close up with this. There's pictures here in Ezra 2 I want us to see that we worship him in our offerings and in our obedience. Yes, we sing and we pray and we hear God's word preached and those are all parts of our worship. But I want you to see two things taking place here in Ezra chapter 2. The first here is this offering that they received. Verse 68. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, and again, notice, the temple's not being rebuilt. It's still in ruins. But it's already considered the house of God. Because again, it's not about the brick and mortar. It's about God had chosen to dwell there in that place. When they came to the house of God that's in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. And according to their ability, which by the way, they only had the ability because God had caused the Babylonians to supply them. When they gave to according to their ability, they gave 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 mines of silver, and 100 priests' garments. So I sat down this week and I thought, hmm, I wonder how much that is. If you do the weight of gold and silver, and I threw in just for fun a $5,000 Armani suit in place of the priestly garments, I don't know what would be the equivalent today, but I thought, hey, I'm never going to own a $5,000 suit, so we'll throw that in there. If you do the math on what those measurements are, they gave a free will offering. That's, that's a modern-day love offering, by the way, of $35 million dollars. A $35 million love offering. Now, we could look at those people and say, man, what a great group of folks. Or we could see where they got the $35 million in the first place and say, what a great God who did supply all their needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus 
who did give everything necessary for accomplishing the work of rebuilding the house of God so that the people might praise God as he had designed them to do. It was never about the temple. And by the way, church, it's not about us either. It's about Almighty God being deserving of the praises of all those He has created, which is all of us. And to rightfully praise Him, He supplies all that is needed. But again, this does not limit in any way our call to obedience. Obedience to God is worship of God. Walking according to His command so that 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll close here. Peter gives this command after laying in all the glorious things that we are. We are now the replacement for that Old Testament temple. We're now the replacement for that Old Testament people. It's, we've now received the mercies of God that we would have never been able to receive in those days. Now this has made us the sons and daughters of God. And so he gives this command as a result. So then keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And here Gentiles is being used as those who don't yet know God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Remember how He called the people to do good works in the name of Almighty God, not so that they would receive glory, but that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. That's the very thing that Peter's calling us to, that we would be the kind of folks who recognize the power of God to bring His people back to His place to provide us with everything that is necessary for the work, and then to send us out to His praise among all the nations. And church, I just want to say, that's the glory of what happens in this place every Sunday when we come together. Every Sunday when we come together, there's this glorious thing where God calls us back to His place as His people, and He provides us with what is necessary to do the work. And that's why we come to the Word of God, because it provides us with what is necessary to do the work. And that's why we bow our knees in prayer, because that's what's necessary to do the work. And that's why we learn to follow Jesus with our lives and become not just church people, but actual disciples of Christ, because that's what's necessary to do the work. And God is providing it all, and He is stirring our hearts just as, they, as He stirred their hearts. And He's leading us back to life in Him. Could we pray together? Father, You are so faithful. Even here in Ezra 2, which just seems like a list of names to us, as we look a little bit deeper, we see, no, there is a monument here to Your faithfulness. What might read as a census report on first glance, we now, we now see as a covenant report. You are true to your word. 
And you are the same God today that you were in Ezra's day, that you were in Moses' day, that you were in Abraham's day, that you were all the way back to the beginning of the world when you made that first promise that you would send one to crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance to your people. So, Father, help us to look to you to by faith receive your provision for what's necessary for us this week. Our daily bread and so much more. And to recognize that we are a people called upon to praise you not just with our lips but with our very lives. To walk in obedience to your commands. To give sacrificially of our time and our talents and our treasures. In all of these things to be that chosen people, that kingly priesthood, that holy nation, a people reclaimed by your rightful possession, that we might be about the business of proclaiming your excellencies, and you are excellent in every way. Reminding ourselves that you are the one who called us out of the darkness of our sin and into the glory of your kingdom. We thank you for these things, Father. Remind us of who we are in Christ. Even more, remind us of who Christ is, our Redeemer. All of these things are true because of him, our King. His amazing love and grace toward us. Father, as we share this final song together this morning, stir our hearts toward loving obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name.